Well, uh, Frankston, it is good to be with you. You guys are like the, um, <clears throat> the loud congregation. And the one with all the talent. Man, I've seen your head on three videos this weekend. <laughs> Every service, the PSI, that's all I hear, the PSI, the PSI, the PSI. So, look, you're here in the front row. I feel privileged. <laughs> but look, it's been two years since I've been with you guys and um, it is a real privilege to be back. I want to thank you for all of the support you've given to the Ministry of Open Doors. We, as Pastor Rob said, have been serving the persecuted church now for more than 60 years, uh, started by a guy called Brother Andrew. Wherever Christianity bumps heads with governments or other religions and there's a fallout, uh, we work with the local church and encourage them to keep shining as brightly as they can for Jesus. One of the things that sets our ministry apart is that by supporting our work, you're not really stopping anything. In fact, you're prolonging persecution. But my job is not to stop persecution. It's not even to stop it growing. It's to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can. Because the reality is that wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. It's almost an earmark of successful Christianity. And so what you guys are doing by supporting our work is helping people shine for Jesus in some of the most conflicted countries on the planet. And so my encouragement to you is please keep supporting it because it desperately needs your help. And one of the easiest things we can do is use the freedom we have here to give and to pray for those people. Another encouragement I want to bring you is that one of the beauties of my job is getting to travel all over the world and see what the church looks like. And it's the diversity of the church that makes it beautiful. Bayside Church, as far as the churches go that I speak in in Australia anyway, you are among the most diverse churches I speak in. Looking around here, not only ethnicity, but also the fact that people from multiple walks of life and different sub-communities in our culture are welcome in this church, sets you apart, and I want to encourage you, it's the beauty and the diversity of the church that makes it so beautiful. And so please be encouraged. As I look around this room, it is incredible to see that a number of nationalities that are represented and it is not common within the Australian church. This morning, what I want to do is I want to take you on a, a little bit of a journey uh, that I've had personally with the ministry. One of the things I love about the persecuted church is that... Uh, Contrary to popular belief, which is always that it's the macabre, it's the broken, it's about the violence, it's about the suffering. It's actually one of the most hope-filled and beautiful things on the planet. It's also one of the most confronting. And what I want to do this morning is take you on a journey of mine that I hope will resonate with you. And it's a journey around the notion of obedience. Pastor Rob talked about a book, God Smuggler. Our ministry started by smuggling Bibles into believers who couldn't otherwise get them. I've had the privilege of smuggling Bibles into countries all over the world. One of the uh, countries was China. And I remember I had 17 kilos of Bibles. We were up in the mountains outside of Hong Kong, getting ready for the next morning to take these Bibles down and hopefully make a successful delivery to persecuted believers. As we sat talking to some local believers from Hong Kong, he says to me, last time we had a group of foreigners here we were standing at the border with our bags ready to cross and we said, let's pray that we can get the Bible through. He says, right there and then, the scanners blew up and caught on fire. <laughs> he says, smoke, flames, all sorts of things. He says, let's pray the same thing would happen. 
And so here I am sitting up on these mountains outside of Hong Kong praying that we would get the Bible through. And the next morning we're on the bus getting ready to drive down to the border and this brother comes running out waving a piece of paper. He jumps on the bus with a big smile on his face and he says it's a news report from a local website. He said, last night at 8.30, the scanners at the Hong Kong border blew up and caught on fire and they'll be down today. And so surely enough, we go down there, there's scorch marks, yellow tape, all the scanners are down, bags are only being selected at random and we were able to make the delivery. But later that day, as we sat with the underground church in China, I remember sitting with a believer, he must have been 60, 70, maybe even 80 years of age. We're talking about faith in the faith face of communism. He was speaking in broken English and I was listening intently as he retold me eerily haunting stories about the cost of faith in China. As our conversation began to draw to a close, I simply said to him, well, brother, can I pray for you? And he says, yeah, I want you to pray the persecution never leaves China. I remember I thought that was a pretty odd prayer quest. As I said to him, well, could could you tell me more? Why? And he says, because we look at the Australian church as a prophetic example of what happens when faith becomes free. He says the value of Jesus drops. I want you to pray persecution never leaves China. I naturally followed up with, well, brother, would you pray for me? He says, yeah, I pray you'd be persecuted. (laughs) Obedience and persecution. They're not mutually exclusive. They're undeniably linked. In fact, have you ever stopped to think about why people are persecuted? Every single instance of persecution in the Bible, whether directed at Jesus or his followers, was always and only ever linked to a public profession of faith or a public outworking of a life devoted to faith in Jesus. And now more than 2,000 years on, in the more than 70 countries we work in, nothing has changed. If we want to stop persecution, we need only to stop people sharing the gospel publicly, showing the gospel personally, or outworking the gospel in community. We need only stop people being obedient. A good friend of mine, Helen Bahani, from a country called Eritrea, she spent two and a half years locked inside a metal shipping container. It's placed in the middle of the desert and it's crammed full of people. In fact, there's so many people in there that you can't all sleep at the same time. And if during the day you're unlucky enough to be on the outside of the group in the container and your skin presses to the side, it would burn to the edge of the container. In fact, she will often wear a shawl these days to cover her arms and that have are covered in burns. On times when she was caught singing worship songs, they'll strip her naked, take her outside and force her to kneel on the jagged rocks. They'll make a hole of bowler so it would drive, the weight of which would drive her knees into the ground. On another occasion, she was caught writing scriptures of encouragement to prisoners. The guards grabbed her, they took her outside, placed her in the middle of the courtyard where everyone could see They stripped her naked and forced her to her knees. The guard said to Helen, where is your Bible? And she said, I don't have one. He said, I'll ask you again, where is your Bible? She said, I don't have one. He said, well, is it in your head? And she said, yeah, it's in my head. 
He said, well, we're going to have to beat it out of you. He grabbed a wooden baton and started to beat her. Halfway through the beating, she stopped and she said to the guard, I do not hate you for you were just carrying out an order. But I need you to know I'm carrying out an order too. And that's not to deny Jesus. So carry on. The guard beat her within an inch of her life, threw her back into the container. And as she laid on the floor in the container, she began to worship. She sang, thank you, God, for the cold nights. Thank you for the hot days. Thank you for the bugs that bite my skin. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I remember as I had this conversation with Helen in a cafe in Sydney, I asked her what must have been one of the most insulting questions she's ever been asked. Because you see, Christianity in her country wasn't illegal, but sharing the gospel was. All Helen had to do to be released was sign a piece of paper saying she would not share the gospel. And so I remember I said to Helen, and you could be a Christian at home. You could sing, you could worship, you could pray, you could read the Bible. Why wouldn't you sign the piece of paper? And without missing a beat, she looked straight through me and she said, because Jesus Christ is the medicine of the world and he must be shared. Obedience. You see, this is what the brother in China was wanting from my life that I would share Jesus visibly, vocally, and valiantly, no matter the cost. Because I've got this sneaking suspicion that the divide between what you and I know as the persecuted church and the free church is not so much more than one's willingness to evangelize, no matter the culture or context. And could it be that if we're not experiencing some form of persecution in our lives, it's because Jesus can't be seen or heard in our lives? And if you think the persecution doesn't exist in Australia, I encourage you to just try sharing the gospel. Because as a ministry, we would say over the last few decades, most Western cultures have gone from Christian-valued cultures to non-Christian-valued cultures, and now we're fast heading towards anti-Christian cultures. The impact of which will either force us into our shell as believers where we continue to take faith from our public lives to our private or it will see us stand up for Christ and endure the resultant persecution. And between you and me, I fear that as a church, if we continue on the path that we are currently on, we are far more likely to fall into a place of cultural and spiritual insignificance than we are persecution. And if that happens, I fear that some of the greatest persecutors of the modern church will become Christian. Because the way that we speak about the church so rarely brings it honour. And it sees us fighting amongst ourselves, pulling each other down, not truly knowing who we stand for, with no biblical literacy, with no tenacity. We go for the easy target and the easiest target is to pull each other down. As I wrestled with the whole notion of obedience and how visible Jesus was in my life, it reminded me of a time I was in Egypt speaking with a brother over there about evangelizing Muslims. And he said to me, Mike, the challenge with you guys in the West is you think that you share Jesus and then they become Christian. Zero to 100. He said it's fundamentally wrong. 
He said, the way we look at evangelizing Muslims is this. It's as though there's a brick wall between you and them. He says, every single brick in that wall represents a question. He says, as you spend time answering questions, bricks come out. He says, eventually the wall gets low enough that you can kind of see the brother's eyes. You still can't walk with them. He says, more time, more questions, more answers, more bricks come out. Eventually the wall gets low enough that you can kind of get your arms through and you can hug them. You still can't walk with them. He says, more time, more questions, more answers, more bricks. He says, eventually the wall gets low enough that you can kind of get a foot through. And he says, that's where the journey begins. He said to me, Brother Mike, how many questions in that brick wall can you answer? You see, there's a brick wall, a metaphorical brick wall between you and anyone else in your world whether they're from the LGBTI community, whether they're agnostic, whether they're atheist, whether they're Muslim, we've got to stop thinking that it's like, hey, you know what, we go and tell them about Jesus and they become Christian. Our job as believers is to identify what the brick wall is and what it's made up of. For some people, it can be talking about death. It can be talking about change. It can be talking about wealth. Our job is to find out what is the brick wall between us and them and how can we best ask questions into it? One of the easiest ways I find of doing this with Muslims is that whenever I'm in a cab with a Muslim, I'll ask them all about their family. I'll ask them all about um, their wife and their kids. It'll eventually get to religion. And then I'll say something along the lines of, do you mind if I ask you a really personal question? Inevitably, the answer is no. And I say, well, could you tell me, who is Jesus to you? They are more than happy to answer that question. And then when they finish answering it, I will inevitably say, would you mind if I tell you who Jesus is to me? You see, again, it's too often that we think, hey, let me just go and tell you about Jesus, then you change. Well, you know what? Unless we show respect to the other side, no matter who they are, Muslim, agnostic, atheist, whatever it is, we can't expect them to change. As part of this journey, I found myself reading some of Paul's writings in Philippians. And the thing that I love about Paul, and I really only dawned on me this year, is the reality that Paul actually never met Jesus personally. I'm not saying he didn't encounter him on the road to Damascus. But what I am saying is that one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament is not too dissimilar to you and I. Because whether it was 10 years after Jesus' death and resurrection or 2000, he never sat down with him. He never ate with him. He never talked with him. He never learned from him. But isn't it funny that when you read the Bible, the way Paul speaks about Jesus is often so vastly different to how I speak about Jesus. Just think through that in, in a biblical sense. So much of the New Testament is written by someone who is in exactly the same situation as us. I want to read you a few verses from Philippians, just starting at verse 20. Philippians 1, verse 20 through 24, and it says this, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I've been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honour to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two. I long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sake, it's better that I continue to live. I find that a really 
beautiful but confronting passage of Scripture. And with my time with the persecuted church, I've realised that there is a massive difference between knowing Jesus and knowing of Jesus. One of the believers in Central Asia said to me, Mike, we look at reading the Bible as our opportunity to walk hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. He says, Brother Mike, when was the last time you read the Bible when you weren't preparing for a sermon? Just last week I was with a believer from India, Sandeep, and I was asking him about his spiritual life and he says, well, every night before he goes to bed, he asks the Lord to wake him up the next morning and he says, every morning the Lord will tap him on the arm and wake him up. I said, Sandeep, what time is that? He said, could be 3.45, could be 4, 4.30. And then he spends several hours just in prayer in the presence of God. I want to be clear, it's not about what time he's waking up. It's about the fact that even in his sleep and in his waking, he devotes it to God and puts it in his hands and trusts him with it. Every single element and expression of his life is in God's hands. I remember I said to him, well, Sandeep, can you tell me about the Australian church? What are your thoughts? He's just been doing a speaking tour around Australia. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I'm not worthy to answer that question. He says, I love being with bodies of believers. I love seeing Jesus worshipped, but I'm not worthy to answer that question. Only Jesus is. Then I said to Sandeep, well, could you tell me, what does a lukewarm believer look like to you? Now with tears rolling down his face, he said, I feel like I'm that person. And I remember I thought to myself, well, at least that makes me cold, you know. (laughs) You see, the persecuted church will tell you that the simplicity of the gospel is being able to articulate who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. One of my friends said he was heartbroken when he went to Germany and met a believer who could only speak to him for 25 minutes about who Jesus was. He said, Brother Mike, I could speak to you for hours about that. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'll probably scrounge together two minutes. As I thought more on that, I realised that actually maybe the stable economic climate we've grown up in and the relative safety of our country has actually been one of the greatest suppressants to our faith. Because looking back, it makes it so difficult for me to find out where the hand of God has been in my life. A brother in China said to me, Mike, persecution is the enemy's second best tactic. His best is materialism. He said, picture this, the enemy has a barrel of a gun pressed towards your temple and he says, renounce Christ or I'll pull the trigger. Lee Chin says, nine times out of ten in that moment, you'll find the courage not to deny Christ and the trigger will be pulled. He says, now picture this. The enemy says, fine, Mike, you can have it all. He takes you to a warehouse. He says, you can have a house, money, cars, friends, fame, food, whatever it is you want. And more than that, you can have Jesus. There he is, anytime he wants, sitting on a throne. Lee Shin says, it's not long before you get so caught up in playing in the blessings that you don't even realise that Jesus Christ has left the building. And he says, that is the problem with materialism. Another brother said to me in Iraq, Mike, your challenge is that you're more in love with life than you are Jesus and it makes you unwilling to die for him. We'd just flown into northern Iraq 
at the height of ISIS. I mean, ISIS had just torn the place up. Thousands of people were arriving on foot, men, women, children, grandparents, people sleeping in the streets, gutters, courtyards of churches. This guy was telling me how he has five children and at night as they sleep in a courtyard of a church, he has to hold them as high in the air as he can to stop the rats getting them. More than that, he tells me how before ISIS came, he was a multi-millionaire. He owned two veterinary clinics, held kilometres worth of undeveloped land. Ten years ago, he had employed a Muslim business partner, a way of evangelising to him. And this brother says to me, looking back, I realised I was just a Sunday Christian. All of the things had gotten in the way of my love for Jesus. And he says, now here living in this camp, I've never felt closer to Jesus than now. Your challenge, Mike, is that you're more in love with life than you are Jesus. And it makes you unwilling to die for him. I remember reflecting on his words that evening at the hotel and thinking, he's right. I do. I love life. I love family. I love my job. I love technology. I love media. I love life. And in and of themselves, they're not bad things. It's when your love for those surpasses your love for Jesus, though, that they become dangerous. You see, I've seen many people survive persecution, but I've seen very few survive prosperity. For example, which is of greater danger to your faith, ISIS or an iPhone? Because I see one of them driving people to God and I see one of them drawing them away from him. And it's a subtlety of distraction that's suffocating our faith, whereas the pressure of persecution, it brings faith to life. It's a way that I can roll over of a morning and think, no, I'm going to pray before I check my phone and all I do is pray faster. Or I say, I'm going to check my phone and get that out of the way before I pray and all I do is pray shorter. We've gone from speaking with a saviour in the sky to being distracted by the so-called answer in our hands. And the impact of that on our obedience is catastrophic. Serving God, it's not a matter of location. It's a matter of obedience. We need to stop measuring our proximity to God based off his provision of safety. And realise it's always and only ever been in Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. We're not promised safe passage, we're given a great commission. Asked to be obedient and given an assurance of an eternal place in the kingdom of heaven. There is a cost to following Jesus. It's neither safe nor free. And as one of our team in Ethiopia said, the only church, the only body of believers that I know is the one of the Bible. It's persecuted. When we practice our faith to the extreme, persecution will come. There is only one sort of group of believers that springs up when faith is practiced to its fullest. They're always persecuted. If we're not being persecuted, we shouldn't thank God for safety. We should question ourselves because we mustn't be living our faith to its fullest. Faith and persecution are inseparable until Christ returns or the world comes to know him. As we begin to wrap up this morning, I want to leave you with a story that I hope you won't soon forget. 
is from Central Asia, one of my favourite parts of the world. It's a part of the world that marries the violence of Islamic extremism with the relentless pressure of communism. They collide to make outworking faith in Jesus exceptionally difficult. I remember standing outside a bustling cotton market with a brother, talking about life, faith, family and all sorts of things. And as we're talking, he says to me, Mike, what does it mean to be wise as a serpent? I remember I didn't have an answer, so I just chose to remain quiet. He paused and he said, well, Mike, tell me, can the serpent hear God? Again, inadequacy and fear of getting it wrong rendered me silent. And he said to me, Mike, the serpent can hear God, but doesn't obey God. My friend paused and with a warm and genuine tone said, sounds a lot like you, right? He went on and he said, Mike, the scriptures, they talk about the sheep and the shepherd. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they obey because they're his most valuable possession. He said, the scriptures also talk about the 99 and the one. Have you ever thought that you might be the one? Because he said, when I look at believers in your country, you claim to know God, but the moment he asks you to do something, you don't obey. And for the first time in my Christian walk, I realized I am the one. I'm a sheep treasured and valued by the shepherd. I hear his voice, but unless what he's asking me is safe, comfortable and guaranteed to work, I rarely obey. Looking back in those moments of obedience, I often mask my evangelism with kindness and generosity, but without articulating Jesus. This brother said to me, well, Mike, in those moments, all you're doing is paving the wide road to hell with generosity and good deeds. Whereas a people I meet in Central Asia, despite what their obedience will cost them, they tell me that the simplicity of the gospel is being able to articulate who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, that their greatest reward is to one day see him face to face and that in their moments of obedience, they've become used to water being their pavement. Can you imagine being so used to stepping out of the boat in courageous obedience that the water felt like solid ground? You see, unless there is a Jesus distinctive to our language, then I fear that we are no better than the serpent who hears the voice of God but doesn't obey. We shouldn't be trying to avoid persecution. We should be running headlong into it, driven by a courageous obedience, knowing that wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. The 99 and the 1. The question is, Which one are you? But the beautiful thing is that he left the 99 for the one. Which means he left the 99 for me. And for that, I will be forever grateful. Obedience. It is one of the hardest lessons I've ever learned with the persecuted church. And it's something that I want to get better at every single day. Because I shouldn't be trying to avoid persecution. If I'm doing that, all I'm doing is taking Jesus out of my life in a language. I need to figure out how to share him visibly, vocally and valiantly, no matter the cost. Let me pray for us. 
Loving God, we come before you this morning and we thank you that, Jesus, you are the one true God, that you have no rival, you have no equal, and that yours is the name above all names. And so, God, I pray today that we would be more attentive to your voice, but more than that, we'll be more courageous in outworking it. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to step forward, that we would share you visibly, vocally, and valiantly in our lives, that we would realise that you truly are the medicine of the world and that you must be shared. And so, God, I speak over this church greater courage, and greater wisdom, greater awareness of your voice in their life. I thank you for the community of believers here. I thank you for the beauty of diversity. And I pray that as we leave here today, that we would find ways of bringing you back into our life vocally, visibly, and valiantly. And so God, we pray this in the wonderful and the most powerful name of your wonderful son, Jesus. Amen.